0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on
1: this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, August the 22nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He is the producer. You'll be speaking with David when you give us a call to get in the queue, on the air, to talk about whatever's on your mind. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is eighty 86- six twenty six well arriving at around two hundred forty five this afternoon at st john 's International Airport, the last wave of our athletes and the mission staff and other support staff are going to be returning from Niagara and the Canada Summer Games, which was a huge success so one hundred and twenty four athletes, eighteen coaches, fourteen support staff, eleven mission staff they 'll touch down later this afternoon. Really successful Canada Summer Games for this province. There's been years gone by where we were less than great and medals were hard to come by. Personal bests are wonderful, but this go around, nine medals eight in week one and one in the second week of competition which featured athletics road cycling diving golf rowing soccer softball volleyball look good in volleyball just came up a little bit short on men's softball finished fourth the women won their final soccer game of the tournament yesterday had good showing in the golf apparently a really good showing in the pool diving as well so with the nine medals the ninth of course captured by Corey hicks twenty-year-old multi-sport para-athlete silver medal in the 400 meter female wheelchair race congratulations to corey Safe travels to all the returnees, and bravo on a stellar couple of weeks at the Canada Summer Games, and, well, fine day for a parade. You might be tired of hearing about it, but I'm telling you, there's thousands of people really excited to see the Stanley Cup on parade here in the city of St. John's today. You all know the story. So Colorado Avalanche forward Alex Newhook from St. John's. The cup arrived yesterday to much fanfare at the airport, which is really great to see. And then what is a lockstep with the kind of person that Alex is? One of the first stops over the Ronald McDonald House for a visit. A lot of cool things planned for today. Of course, the festivities get going in Bannerman Park around 12 o'clock today. Parade starts at 2, makes its way down to George Street. Festivities wind up there at 4 o'clock, but it's going to be a great day. So, if you'd like to pass along a congratulations or a comment on our Canada Games athletes and or Alex Newhook and the Stanley Cup in town, the third Newfoundlander, would be able to hoist the cup, or we said, of course, Michael Ryder and Danny Cleary. Well, last champions, there be a bunch of us hoisted over our head today without having won anything. But if you want to pass something along, we'll put together a little compilation and pass on to whether it be Gary Martin, the admission chief for the Canada Summer Games, and or to young Alex Nook. But congratulations. I know the, the cup was on our street this morning. Pretty exciting to say at the very least. You want to talk about it? Let's do it. I also want to say good morning and bravo to Maggie Connors from St. John's once again, hockey player. She was at the Hockey Canada Development Camp recently, played on the development team in a three-game set against the Americans. Looked good, too. Scoring goals, looking really strong. She's 21 years old. She's not in the lineup for the upcoming World Championships, which begin in Denmark on the 24th of this month, she's going back to Princeton to return for her senior year, where she's had a stellar NCAA career and a Princeton education to boot. So, looking good out there, Maggie, and good luck in this upcoming se- season down in Princeton. She looks fabulous. This is a great story. This is a mother-daughter story in powerlifting. Abby Hanrahan Miller from Happy Valley Goose Bay she started powerlifting and at 15 years of age she needed to bring her mother whose name is Dana Hanrahan to supervise her at the gym so now all of a sudden mom based on some encouragement from whether it be her daughter or others in the gym is now powerlifting as well so when it becomes a family affair it even takes on a little bit more I guess importance and pride when you have that type of outcome so now they're both competing and in the uh... in May they both won their age and weight class at the Canadian Powerlifting Union National Championship. Young Abby is off to the world, so uh, let's get the proper title here. She's going to Turkey anyway to compete, and the proper name of that is the World Classic and Equipped Sub-Junior and Junior Powerlifting Championships in Istanbul later this month. So congratulations to both Abby Hanrahan Miller, Dane Hanrahan, pounding away on the weights, powerlifting, and off to the international tournament in Turkey. Good luck, safe travels to you. So let's stick with Labrador for a second. For the second time, the History Channel is sending their series Alone back to Labrador. This time it's called Alone Frozen. It's season number nine. So the last go around, there was a, after 78 days, this fellow Juan Pablo Quinones won $500,000 for outlasting the rest of the competitors. This time in Frozen, there's six contestants, former contestants, they return for another crack of a half a million dollars. This time, they only have to last 50 days. Anyone still there at the end of 50 days will split the money. But in the way it was marketed, right, they're talking about the fish and clams. And, you know, the prospect of seeing a polar bear. Having come to your camp. Not necessarily accurate given the fact the time of the year they got there made it fairly unlikely a polar bear, but another showcase for the province. And of course, Labrador has a lot to offer. And so they've got that taped up there in lab, and we'll see what Alone Frozen looks like. But of course, rugged to say the very least, and fifty days, if you can last, outlast, or join with someone who's been able to last the fifty days, you can share in the big pot. Cool. Okay, let's stick with Labrador. You know, there's some curiosity surrounding the pending announcement and deal to be signed tomorrow in Stephenville. And I saw someone float this concept out through that, given all the snarls and the endless problems with the Muskrat Falls project, specifically what goes on a soldier's pond, and of course the major one at this moment in time would be the software glitch on the Labrador Island link. Someone asked me, and I don't know the answer to but it's an interesting thought. I'm not so sure this is on um, point, but with our commitments to Amera, for delivering hydroelectricity to our partners because they paid for the maritime link, 500 megawatts worth, that was built on time, on budget. They've got it built into their alternative compliance plan, a further reliance on natural gas and hydroelectricity to further reduce the amount of coal-fired generation that Nova Scotia Power's customers rely on at this moment. But at this stage, we've been unable to deliver. Now, there has been power flowing across the Maritime Link. There has been power flowing down the Labrador Island Link, but none of it maxed out to meet our contractual obligations. So they've got plans to have uh, up to 40% of their customers served by natural gas and hydroelectricity. That began in 2020 and it increases there into 2029. Okay, so they haven't hit their targets. I just wonder, and we've never been given a real firm understanding about the numbers on this one. We've sold them some power, pardon me, we've delivered them some power. Have we met our obligations? What are the implications for not meeting them? Are there fines and penalties in place? We don't know. You know, what happens when and if they cannot solve the software glitch? Because we've got a contract with Amera. I'm pretty sure they couldn't care less about the hurdles that we continue to face at Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. But the Amera deal, so someone wondered, and here was the specific question. With the Green Hydrogen announcement tomorrow, the contract to be signed between Canada and Germany, Prime Minister Trudeau and Chancellor Schultz will be in Stephenville. There's still a lot of questions yet to be answered about exactly what that contract looks like. You know, we could indeed be at the tip of the spear, a world player in the delivery of hydrogen, in this case green hydrogen, to the European market is what it looks like, especially Germany now, if they're the first signatory to the issue. But you know, I think it's not unfair to ask that what other projects are actually involved here? Because the proposal from World Energy GH2, John Risley and his partners, they don't have final approval. So what exactly does this contract mean? In an effort, look, I don't know a whole lot about hydrogen. I don't know how many of the listeners do. There's lots of proponents out there. It will indeed want to be the one of the transition fuels. But there's a fellow going to join us on the show in a little bit. His name is Danny Caron. He's the president and CEO of the Port of Beldoon. That's near Bathurst in northern New Brunswick. He'll be in Stephenville with the uh, fellow leaders in the industry. They've got a big deal struck with uh, a New York company. They have another big announcement coming, but just to get a better understanding of what the hydrogen industry looks like. What they've got in store for their uh, contractual relationships with the New York company. So if you want to put some of the questions regarding it to Mr. Cadron, I can do them on your behalf. Here's something that I don't think that we've even broached on this subject. Well, maybe a little bit. You know, we need to know if we're going to sell or to lease the Crown land. We also need to know just how much water is involved here. You know, for the initial phase at 164 wind turbines, the hydrogen and ammonia plant closer to the port of Stephenville itself, how much water are we actually talking about? Water is a really valuable commodity. We got it. We got the wind. We got the water. We got the crown land. We got the deep port. We have the proximity to market. So we're in good stead to see these projects come to town. But what's really in it for us? How do we maximize return? To have these industries set up shop. I don't think there's people out there who are anti-wind. Well, maybe if you're living close by with with these uh, wind farms, you might have your own uh, perception and or concerns. And we welcome your thoughts on the matter on the program here this morning. So see if we can get down to a bit more brass tacks with a fellow who's actually in the industry and see what they're doing. Here's one question. How does the end consumer utilize green hydrogen? You know, and we do know when comparing to the gray or the blue, green is quite expensive to produce and to ship and to store. So maybe he can help us understand a little bit more on that front. What do you think? Let's go. One thing we'll do is create some jobs, Of course it will. Upfront jobs in construction and security, ongoing operational jobs. I'm not exactly sure. I don't think anybody really knows whether we're talking about the proposal in Stephenville or Argentia or the other suitors who have shown or expressed some interest in coming to Newfoundland and Labrador. And with some of these moves, brings on some more real estate activity. Just think about it. When we've seen oil contracts signed in the past, even if you weren't directly impacted positively, the real estate market really did reflect what would be the optimism of signing these types of contracts and the jobs created. We've got a housing crunch here, a rental crunch, especially on the Northeast Avalon. The market has been super hot there's some cooling we see across the country but now with higher interest rates and the completely unnecessary mortgage stress test at the CM the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation now with more and more institutional funds looking at the residential real estate market it's pushing up valuations the yields are lower so one of the keys for many people is to get into their own home but when you see so many homes going for ask or over ask And some of the people you might be competing with are the Blackstones of the world. Blackstone is an interesting outfit. They've already secured over $24 billion in commitments into the real estate fund they call the Blackstone Real Estate uh, Estate Partners X. They do a lot of this work in Asia and Europe. And now they've got their eyes on this country. There's a huge impact in the United States. So when you're dealing with a hedge fund and or these institutional funds like Blackstone, they're talking about putting $50 billion on the table. So for folks like me and you, already up against it, with inflation and the cost of living and an increase in interest rates and the stress test to get into a mortgage, competing with the like of Blackstone becomes daunting, to say the least, and insurmountable quite likely. So I see people react say, well, it shouldn't be allowed. Okay, but what do you do about it? You know, there's been some moves made in this country about uh, buying property and no one lives in it. And you have, what is it, I think two years to either flip it or to see someone live in it as opposed to just sitting on it as a a real estate investment and parking your money if you're a Chinese wealthy person or what have you. But this, I think, we don't have the full implication of what that's going to look like in this country. But it's coming, it's a big deal. All right, let's keep going. Unfortunately, we're almost back to school. Classes are resumed on the 7th of September. We already know that masks will not be mandatory, but strongly recommended and up and down the line. And now, as we've seen, particularly in healthcare, a lot of talk about recruiting and retaining teachers. We've long had a, a shortage of substitute teachers. So it's a national chase for the same professionals. They're in demand, and people may indeed be looking for what they might think are greener pastures elsewhere. So there's a lot of talk about recruiting and retaining a teacher. How that looks, I don't know. It's certainly different, although I'm sure, like many, you're sick of hearing recruiting and retaining, even though we gotta do it. But in healthcare, I think we have a better understanding of what it looks like, and we can get into that. But in the world of education, not sure. But one thing inside the schools that gets some attention and discussion, we'll talk about keeping them safe and the type of curriculum that's put forward at all the various grade levels and the implications of pre-kindergarten and the 30-school pilot project this year. But, vaping. Vaping is not brand new, but it's still new enough that we don't really fully understand the health implications. Some moves in talking about banning the, the, the flavors, you know, getting a watermelon vape or cherry or strawberry or something. But the prevalence of vaping in schools is unbelievable, just ask folks, in particular junior high and high school. They'll talk about the sneaking of a puff in the bathroom and in the halls, and it's everywhere. Now, not every kid has the the vape in their pocket, but a lot of them do. So it becomes difficult that if the parents are willing to understand that their children are doing it, how do the administrators in the schools deal with vaping? What do we actually do about it? You know, people talk about weed being a gateway to more illicit, harder drugs. There's a certain amount of documentation about gateway. Some people use vaping as a way to quit smoking. For others, it might be the step into smoking. So someone wanted me to bring up the vaping, and I'm happy to do it on the show this morning. How are we doing on the phones? David, Monday morning, you know me, you need a little assistance. All right, he had another story about churches, parish halls, built with local labor, blood, sweat, and tears that are now on the chopping block. We've mentioned several in the past. St. Gabriel's Hall, uh, to name one, and now a story about Sacred Heart Catholic Church of St. Brides. It's a, one of several parishes up the Cape Shore up for sale. So as they say, I mean, it's personal for many of these people, 252 residents were baptized there. People got married there, said their final goodbyes to loved ones there. And the church didn't pay for the church to be built, the Roman Catholic Church, the locals did. And the story's about a gentleman named Henry Crean. He remembers what he recalls the trucks rolling in, the workers, all local men, pouring concrete, horse-drawn wagons, carting in gravel and stone. And for the next 66 years, Mr. Crean has watched the church grow, all under the care and control of the locals whether people be with their weekly donations, but they built it, and through no fault of their own, they are quite, legally, quite likely going to see it sold out from under them. So there's still big questions. And again, a judicial ruling for the victims of my own cash to be compensated is, of course, just. It's just how, the money, how they come up with the money. Further to that, this story kind of confuses me. This is, you know, someone mentioned, to, uh, I think, on this program last week about, you know, the residential school survivors and the requirement for them to come up with the $25 million in compensation. Now, apparently, I'd never heard of this, there was a deal struck back in 2015 to give these, these Catholic entities a forever discharge. No longer required to fundraise any additional monies. At one point the story was they came up with $1 million, and then they got as much as $4 million, And now all of a sudden they don't have to come up with any millions. A forever discharge. How can that be, and how can it have taken so long for us to understand that that's the reality? So the 2015 then Harper Conservative government, it just needs to know like, what the motivation might be. Here's one of the questions asked by Rye Moran. She's an associate librarian at the University of Victoria and the founding director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. She says, like all questions around accountability, the question is, who made the decision? How was that decision made? Who ultimately signed off on this? All very good questions, but an interesting story that people are starting to know and understand more and more about. Okay, let's check the Twitter feed. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline@vosm.com. This is an interesting tune to get us going here on a Monday morning, the 22nd of August, Parade Day. Two of my faves, Kenny and Dolly. When Kenny Rogers was on the show, it was the day after Ron Hineside. Interestingly enough, or coincidentally, still one of the more interesting interviews or conversations we've had on this program, but it was today, 1983. And we know Kenny's relationship with Sprung and all that stuff. And I love Dolly. Today, 1983, the great duo released this one Islands in the Stream. Nice choice. Don't go away. And welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Rosie. You're on the air. <laughs>
2: Hi. Uh, you know the Mike Walsh show, right? Well, uh, you know what he tells you to eat, like the plant-based diet, right? I've been okay. on that diet now for about four years, right? Okay. And you know what? what? That does some good for your body. I put my cholesterol down. I didn't need to take a pill. The doctor told me. He said, you need to take a pill. Your cholesterol is so high, right? And I didn't take it. And when I went back, you know what? He said, your cholesterol has gone down so low. You don't need no pills.
1: Rosie, what are you eating yep. on your plant-based diet?
2: Oh, my God gosh I eat like okay yeah black beans chickpeas and lentils all those kind of beans no salt in, in it right or nothing right and then I have rice and then after I have like uh, like I have so like uh, vegetables and fruits and stuff like that and it's amazing because I'm an old lady right and I don't have nothing seriously wrong yet like I just got a low thyroid gland and you know what I'm trying to get off of that pill but I need the doctor's uh, uh, help to get off of that because, uh, yeah, but I'm thinking maybe it's nothing wrong with it. So, you know what? I asked my doctor to... No, I lost my doctor. And then after I asked the one that I got now, I said, could you give me an ultrasound on my thyroid gland? And he did it. And he did it. And his next month, I'm so excited because uh, I want just to find out if my thyroid gland is defective or... I'm not getting enough iodine, and if it's something as simple as getting uh, more iodine in my body, I will do it. But right now, I can't do it because if I do, I, while I'm on that pill, it'll probably go overactive. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, but my I,
1: God,
3: I don't know, you know
2: what. I recommend that diet to uh, not the diet, but that uh, change of diet to anybody because you know what? I have so much energy that is unreal. But you know what I did last week? If my time is running out, just tell me. Uh, well, not last week, but a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you right. Well, then after I was to drink a lot of caffeine, and my God, when I didn't have a cup of tea, caffeine for one day. I ended up with a migraine headache that lasts for four days, and then after that, my bones started hurting for probably about seven days, but I stood it out, and I was thinking nothing's going to control me, right? (laughs) That's what I was feeling, right? But you know what? I'm off of caffeine now. And you know what I thought for a minute there? I was thinking, if I get off that all that caffeine, and you know in the painkillers, caffeine's in there, right? And that takes away the pain. Oh, my God, my bones never got sore or numbing, and that's like two weeks ago now, and nothing's coming back. And how I know it's the caffeine withdrawal, right? It's because I tried for years to get off of that, and I just couldn't do it. Like, every time I get a headache and it the last four days, I just start drinking the tea again. But... Uh, But I'll never go back caffeine. Oh, the reason why I call, right? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You want to say something?
1: Not at all. And this is meant just off the cuff. It doesn't sound like you need caffeine. You're a bundle of energy here this morning.
2: Oh my god no 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 I'm always like that oh I'm god. always like that Lovely. I don't know uh, I think it's the diet that I'm on like the plant based diet because uh, well I overdo it with the well the black beans and lentils and that like I open the can right and I have like half a can Is that because, a lot Because you know I I don't know but uh, I have to have a can with the other stuff right because um well it's only me eating it and they say um Like, uh, you can't have it more than two days in your fridge, so I have it, like, today, and then tomorrow I have to rest. But anyway, I have so much energy. But you know what? I was uh, I was asleep. Uh, I don't know what time it was, like, probably about two weeks ago or something like that. Well, I was asleep, right? And I thought maybe it was kids at the bridge, like, you know, kids hanging around, right, and joking around and stuff like that. But I thought I heard a bear. Okay. And then after, so my dog, I got a dog, right? It's a husky. It's beautiful. And you know what? It doesn't bark. Only time it barks is when uh, I give him food, and he tips over all the food on the floor and takes his pen and he puts his paw on it and he's twirling it in a circle he has so much fun right but you know what he doesn't bark but he's staring at the wall and then when i looked out that was a long while ago this part it was a moose there it
1: was so a, You guess a what
2: uh, uh, that, was, that was a couple of years That was about two years ago or a year ago. I seen the moose there But I'm just telling you With my dog He doesn't bark But he stares at the wall Where something is All right. So then after well, Two weeks ago I heard a bear And I thought it was the kids But then after You know what but. It was a real It was a real bear Because the neighbors uh, Were talking about it too Right And uh, it had a cup And I heard it Outside my house And you know what When no. I was doing my field With the with, uh, What do you call it The whipper snipper well, I thought it was uh, moose poop, right? But then my neighbor came over and she wanted it for a garden. You know what she said? That's bear poop. Bear scot, it, yeah. really, it really is a, a bear around. But they're getting close to the house, right? So what I was going to ask you, right which I don't know, is uh, if you, I got a loud alarm, right? If, I, if they come right close, like right, well, uh, if I turn on that alarm, would it... get them to
1: go back into the trees? Very likely. But now, I'm not going to give you any bear safety tips. I don't want to put you in a perilous spot. But but you're smart on everything else, though. Well, uh, (laughs) what you should not do is go out and engage the bear. And it's too bad that you don't have uh, the dog that's able to bark the bear away necessarily either. But, you know, when we know we have bears around, like when I live down in Western Canada, first things first is to try to eliminate what they're coming to in, in close buy a house for and that's something to eat so like the garbage cans when we lived in jasper alberta they were locked you know the bears couldn't open them so we did everything possible to keep bears away from the community now they'll eventually and inevitably come close but just make sure you've got nothing left out there like something you might have had left out for your own dog make sure that if you had a bowl of food out while the husky the beautiful husky okay okay maybe you don't i'm just saying just don't put any food out rosie i'll let you wrap up very quickly because i do have to get a break but i'm enjoying the
2: okay 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 uh no i don't need no food the only thing good. that i do is uh feed one stray cat and with cat food on a step but i take it in That's so the only food that i put out.
1: you put out the food for the cat you go back in to see if the cat shows up and That's the cat correct. eats it and then you take in the tin what do you put out for the cat bit of tuna
2: oh no no no, no, no. Uh, i didn't think tuna was good for cats
1: i don't know I don't, i've never owned a cat
2: uh, whiskers, the dry oh, you food? put out
1: just regular cat food. Of course you do.
2: Yeah. You're Normally I take it in. Normally I take it in, eh? but sometimes I forget it, it I, there. I but wonder,
1: I do the cats like yeah. the chickpeas? Lentils? Chickpeas.
2: No, I wouldn't part with that for my life.
1: <laughs> Rosie, good to have you on the show. Way to start off a uh, Monday morning.
2: And you're doing a good job, and you help so many people, including me. Thank well, you so much.
1: Take good care of yourself.
2: Okay, then. Alrighty.
1: Bye. Bye, Rosie. Ideal. Right? So, yeah, plant-based diet. I mean, there's a lot of people making the move. Some of it has been encouraged because of price point. I mean, just think about it. And, you know, there's always got to be concern with the amount of protein in your dietary intake. And especially on Monday mornings where I can, admittedly, be a little sluggish, even though I was really early in bed last night. Uh, maybe, just maybe, it's a, a black bean, chickpea, lentil slushy. And look out. Alright, we're we'll talking about a green hydrogen. Let's take a break. When we come back, as advertised earlier in the program, the president and CEO of the Port of Bell Dune thats in northern New Brunswick. His man the man's name is Denny Caron. He's up and then we're speaking with you. Don't go
3: away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's open line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from nine AM to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one, Let's take a moment to the president and the CEO of the Port of Bell Dune. That's Denny Caron. And good morning, Mr. Caron. You're on the air. Good morning patty how are you today i'm very well thanks for asking how about you sir very well thank you so we're talking about hydrogen in this province we know that the industry is at its infancy in this country albeit well understood in many other parts of the world describe what you're doing in new brunswick and relationship whatever you can divulge relationship with the uh, state the new york state
4: well
5: essentially uh the port of baldoon has been in operation over 50 years we're an industrial park we handle dry bulk and liquid bulk And we actually have a coal-fired plant next to us. It uh, produces about 480 megawatts of energy. And as such, the Canadian government is looking to eliminate the use of coal in 2030. So we've looked at other opportunities with respect to the energy sector. And clearly, we see a, a great opportunity with the production of hydrogen. So we've been actually looking at... Uh, what are the components, what, what's necessary essentially to, to, to produce hydrogen here in New Brunswick and in particular at the port. So we've been undertaking that work now for the past six to eight months.
1: So in this, in this province, the notable proposal is from World Energy GH2. 164 wind turbines, an ammonium hy- hydrogen plant close to the port, opportunity to triple it in size. What's the magnitude of the project you're working towards in the initial stage?
5: So the initial stage is 200 megawatts to start the production. So it's what we call a commercial pilot. And that will be using electricity from the existing grid. So we're talking about green or clean energy that we can get off the grid. But really we can build up the energy source with renewables similar to what is being proposed elsewhere. So we have the capabilities in New Brunswick to augment essentially more wind or more solar and use the existing grid essentially to bring that energy to the port and use it for production.
1: In this province, we have uh, an awful lot of our power generated by hydroelectricity, and of course, we have the thermal generating plant at Holyrood which is a real polluter that hopefully someday goes by the wayside. What's the grid mix look like in your province? I know in Nova Scotia, it's upwards of 50% still coal-fired. What does it look like in New Brunswick?
5: So in New Brunswick, we have what's called 83% non-emitting. So New Brunswick does have nuclear capability. We have hydro as well with the Mactaquac Dam in Fredericton. We have renewables in, in wind in particular. And we're trying to get off fossil fuel, so coal or other fuels that we have in, in New Brunswick that we're using. Hence uh, the power plant in Belle that uses coal.
1: Hydrogen, of course, is still a brand new topic in this province. We talk about uh, blue and gray and green hydrogen. There's a difference between the costs associated with production, storage, and shipping of all three. What are you working towards?
5: So we're working towards green and clean hydrogen, essentially, so using renewables uh, off the grid and also uh, increasing the production of renewables in, in our region. Uh, Of course, you know, green energy is is really the way of the future. If you look at industries in the next, you know, 10 or 15 years, they'll be wanting to produce essentially green products. And many of the fuels that are used today, pet coke or coal or dirty fuels. Hence, not able to produce clean energy. So, not only are we looking to export uh, to markets such as Germany, but we're also looking for domestic opportunities. I mean, at our port, not only do we have a power plant, but up until 2019, we had a lead smelter that ran uh, for over 50 years. Glencore operated that smelter, and they were using essentially a dirtier fuel such as propane for for their process. What we see is really industry or attracting industry to use this hydrogen product to produce clean fuel. So, because we are an industrial port, we're able to bring materials in, such as iron ore, we could process it into green pellets for steel industry and ship it back out. So, it's really a two-prong approach. It's not just producing and exporting, but it's also producing and using at home.
1: When they talk about green hydrogen, we're also talking about electrolysis and how much water, which is one of the fundamental questions we have here in this province how much water because water is a precious commodity how much water involved with this one proposal in stevenville what's the role of water and natural gas in your plan
5: so with respect to water again because of the power plant back in over 30 years ago the plan was to build four of these coal plants but much of the infrastructure around it was built to support for. So we have fresh water, or clean water that we're only using for one power plant. And with the lead smelter, same thing. They were using clean water and there was sufficient quantities or volumes available. And since the closure, we have access to that clean water as well. So water is a very important ingredient uh, in producing hydrogen, obviously uh, with H2O. So, so we, we have sufficient water resources we're on rail as well, so within we're, we're connected to the North American system. Uh, but we have access to global markets, like we handle currently over 27 different products that either we export to Europe or we import from from different markets. We also export to China different products as well. So being on the Atlantic Ocean allows us really access to global markets as well.
1: Some of these questions might sound very fundamental, so I apologize up front. How much water, fresh water, would you use to generate whatever the grid component looks like? How much water would be used in the generation of 200 megawatts annually, we'll say? And what happens to the water? Is it one time only? It comes through the plant, and then it's just put into the ocean, or is it a recycling component? Help us understand how the water is utilized.
5: So the water is u- utilized when you're exporting, essentially, um, uh, hydrogen you have to mix it with ammonia so the water is, is used primarily for the for the export side and I can't give you off off the top of my mind how much water is required, but we 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 are going to ensure that we have sufficient water at hand, which we believe we do. So the water, of course, is is for the most part the ammonia side of it. But of course, when you're producing hydrogen, which is H2O, you're split. You're using water to produce that H2. So essentially, there there is a water requirement there as well.
1: So let's just say your green hydrogen arrives in New York with that New York company. How is it used at the other end? We understand transmission lines and hydroelectricity and natural gas and propane and wind and solar. How is hydrogen used by the end consumer?
5: So essentially, if it's exported to New York, uh, it's 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 exported with ammonia. So it's mixed with green ammonia, and then when it gets to its destination, the H2 has to be or the hydrogen has to be retracted once again, and that becomes essentially like a fuel. So it's a different type of fuel. It could be you know if you want to compare it to nat- natural gas or propane, you can use it you know from that from that perspective. But it's a much cleaner fuel. Obviously, it doesn't emit CO2. So you can use it as uh, for vehicles or you can use it for transportation but more importantly you can use it for a large industry that requires a power source to generate enough energy to produce different products and as I say currently on the market if you're looking at a refinery for instance or if you're looking at a cement plant or if you're looking at uh, any type of large industrial operation, you need a fuel other than electricity to essentially produce those products. And hydrogen becomes that clean fuel that allows products to be uh, um, produced and and no CO2 emitted.
1: Of course, we're talking about your port and a contract with a New York company. But in this province tomorrow in Stephenville, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, and German, or Chancellor, German Chancellor Schultz will sign an agreement. We don't know exactly what it is. Most of it's been spurred by the reliance that Germany has on Russia. And because of it, there's been a real rush to the, be at the forefront of this green hydrogen business, try to find a market in the EU, specifically in Germany. But the thought is, and just help me under, understand how the risks should be viewed, whether or not you can do it at a, a price point that is cost-effective, whether or not you can do it quick enough to actually meet German demands today or as soon as the hydrogen could be developed, how do you assess that risk? Because we can only hope that the current invasion in Ukraine will not last forever. But how do we know that we can get to that market in a long-term sustainable approach versus what seems in some corners to be knee-jerk hopes?
5: No, that's a great question, Patty. And essentially, we're seeing a shift Uh, consumers are are requesting green products once again and we're starting to see that uh, governments are responding in the same way of looking at reducing CO2 and, and, and essentially providing green energy sources to fuel those industries. So I I think the market demand, notwithstanding Germany, is is growing. Industries today are recognizing the need to reduce their footprint, their CO2 footprint, and really moving towards newer technologies and newer ways of producing this type of energy. So clearly, uh, this is uh, a fuel for the future. Uh, There will be risk, initial risk, in starting because, I mean, uh, when you're starting a new production facility and you're looking at markets and the sense and, and looking at uh, you know uh, opportunities, there is a risk in any of these uh, of any of these industries. But we see the trend really going in the right direction. And really, what's hap- happening, unfortunately, in Germany with respect to Russia and the Ukraine situation quite frankly is accelerating the, the use of clean energy so as we know uh, germany is not using fossil fuels they they are closing their coal plants they are uh eliminating their nuclear plants as well and we know that the natural gas coming from russia is going to have a significant impact and i think or germany in particular in europe are also looking at ways of cleaning up the environment and using uh, cleaner fuels to do that so you can say on one hand yes it is an unfortunate situation but uh, on the same on the same side essentially there is an opportunity that seems to be opening as we speak as far as our project you know we're looking at being in production by 2027 so clearly uh, we have to ensure that we consult properly uh, with First Nations with the community that we do the environmental impact assessment studies and we're one of the only few ports in Canada that has a formal relationship with the Mi'kmaq community so back in 2018 we essentially signed an agreement with the eight Mi'kmaq communities that we have here on the eastern side of the province and they work with us hand in hand on all development projects that we're involved in. So we're very proud of that protocol arrangement, we're very proud to work with the stakeholders and certainly very proud to receive their input and participation.
1: The focus has been on the Prime Minister and the German Chancellor, but also attending this forum, a Leadership Summit, will be some pretty big names. Representing representing some pretty big outfits, Bayer in town, Siemens Energy, Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, ThyssenKrupp, just to mention uh, just a bare-bones few. We know that there's always a semblance of being in the same room with other business leaders and the networking and elbow rubbing that goes on, but what are you hoping to achieve? Because there's a mad rush for capital, whether it be provincial aid, federal aid, and or private sector capital, what are you hoping to achieve in Stevenville?
5: So essentially, what we're looking to achieve is, is really looking at what we call offtake arrangements or opportunities to provide hydrogen. Uh, we will be looking at making other announcements while we're in Newfoundland with respect to the partnerships that we're involved in. But essentially, we already did a reconnaissance trip back in May in Uh, Actually, Germany and the the Netherlands with respect to a number of these companies that uh, you're speaking of. And and we know that there is a huge demand for this product to import the product in different ports uh, in Europe, primarily here in Germany. So companies such as Volkswagen or Siemens or others are looking for uh, these these types of energy products or, or, or the fuel to really supply their industries back home. I mean, their industries have to keep operating. They are using, you know, different types of fuels, but they're looking to to have the cleanest fuel possible to, in essence, produce clean product. So we see a huge demand, huge opportunity to discuss and have bilateral conversations with many of these uh, CEOs that that will be part of the Chancellor's uh, delegation.
1: Uh, Last one before I let you go, sir. So, you know, we look at the oil industry here. We talk about how net zero emissions and the roadmap to it, the mitigation measures for our offshore compared to dirtier oil in Alberta, but its downstream emissions are, you know, like 80 or 90%. So in your industry history of green hydrogen how much of the coal heavy oils and others are diverted but it feels better because we have a greener outcome with hydrogen how much uh, much less of a reliance on these dirtier sources will actually be achieved by hydrogen or just is it more about the end product end consumer, and in consumer downstream emission how much has been diverted
5: well I think if I use Baldoon as an example we import about 1 million metric tons of coal and if we can essentially eliminate that the use of coal and use cleaner fuels in the power plant not only can we save the power plant but we can make that power plant greener and using our example in Beldoon is we want to get off fossil fuel Um, between actually the lead smelter that closed in 2019 and the power plant that currently operates in Beldoon Those were the second and third largest emitters in New Brunswick. So of course the Glencore smelter closed in 2019. It eliminated that. Coal will be eliminated in 2030. So it will reduce the CO2 hopefully if we find a cleaner product to use. And Beldoon, that was recognized as a heavy industrial zone, has an opportunity with hydrogen and clean products to become a green industrial zone. And that's what we're trying to achieve in our strategy and our plan.
1: I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Mr. Caron. Enjoy your your time here in the province, Stephenville in particular. Thank you, sir. Thank you
5: very much.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. That's Denis Caron. He's the president and CEO of the Port of Bell Dune. We're all still trying to learn a bit more about what's going on in the hydrogen industry. Okay, when we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So we just rhymed off a couple of the corporations and entities that will be represented in Villa. and it's a pretty wild list if you look down through it. I have a copy of it here if you're so inclined. The additional question would be, it's not only so, Mr. Caron, and we know the prime minister will be here and the german chancellor you wonder what other additional representation from this province because yes at this moment it's private sector creating these proposals but the province is obviously intimately involved it's our crown land it's our ports it's our water and i guess it's our wind so where else are we on this and add to that you know we've talked about north vault ab signing a deal with valet About the critical minerals required for electric batteries, electric vehicle batteries. So Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz, just two notable uh, global leaders in the automotive industry. What else can be done with these people? Siemens Energy, Bayer, they're just not here to talk about hydrogen. So you wonder what else is actually on the table, on the agenda, who's representing the province at these types of summits, as people like to call them. Because it's not just about Hydrogen. when you get in the room, rooms with these type of people from these types of corporations. So just, you know, more yet to be fully understood about exactly what's going on in Stephenville. And again, none of this is about saying that, no, we should never entertain any other projects because of some past failings. It's not that at all. It's got nothing to do with being anti-wind. But the questions that are looming, it'd be just nice to have answers to them so we have a better, well-rounded understanding of what the potential is here whether it be for the creation of jobs expanded the tax base in the province or whatever else comes with it. And, you know, I've heard some people skirting around royalties. Royalties on what? Water? Wind? I don't know. But it would be nice to understand what the economics look like for us. And, of course, if you're in the port of port region and if your concern is strictly environmental, or it's about what you might consider the eyesore of 164 wind turbines, which might be only the beginning, because as the proposal quite clearly states, it has the potential to, trip, the potential to triple in size. So still some stuff yet to be understood here. Now, if that's not of interest, there's a real good program. Maybe we'll speak with Josh Schmee from Food for NL coming up here soon, too. They're launching a new program called Great Things In Store. Trying to develop partnerships and improve food access across the province, they're looking for some uh, retail partners. So you'll have support from the Food First NL staff. There's some funding for the pilot projects. They're looking for all these retailers who can apply online. The deadline is September 30th. But so food is always a top line conversation here. But whatever you want to talk about, we can do it right after this newscast. Don't go away.
3: Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at one on your. V-O-C-M. welcome back to the
1: show well like we've been discussing with the concept of recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals for instance it's not the same everywhere like out in the town of gander they're actually building a mosque in an effort to retain the muslim doctors in that community they've got a different approach on fogo island they have a different approach in the great northern peninsula there's also the issue with recruiting and retaining teachers again not the same issue everywhere in the province Including Lab West, where the NDP member representing Lab West joins us in the queue this morning. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's nice to be on here today. Happy to have you on the show. So, you know, again, we talk about these as a one-size-fits-all, a catch-all, recruit and retain. It's just not that simple. So it's other things and other getting someone interested in coming to where you are. It's finding everything else they need, amenities, proximity to other uh, other parts of the country, the cost to travel in and out, and somewhere to live, a problem for them potentially in Lab West.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, and this is like... Problem for a lot of uh, professionals outside of the mining industry. So right now, um, Laver West, as you say, is going through another boom, and you know the cost of everything has gone up. So the price of actual housing has gone unaffordable to anyone who's not on a uh, a mine worker salary, and, and most cases of uh, you know both uh, both partners uh, are usually working in the mine who afford housing in this region right now. So you have a single teacher, probably uh, you know some uh, you know fresh out of school or something their salary is not going to be able to pay for a three hundred dollars or $400,000 house. <laughs> and now we have no apartments available because people who do not work in the mines are, ta- are currently living in a lot of uh, apartment living. So we're in a crunch where there is just no accessible and affordable housing. housing in Labra West. So it kills all aspects of recruitment for this region.
1: Do you happen to know where we are? Because it's an annual event where the district does what it can and then there's the seniority issue, people getting bumped from one job or another, some waiting to see what opportunities might pop up that they like better. Consequently, first day of school comes and there's always vacancies that have yet to be filled. Do you happen to know where we are in Lab West?
0: So right now, um, if you go on Facebook on uh, you know Concerning or any of those uh, Facebook pages, uh, right now we have People who uh, teachers who want to come to the reason to work asking and begging, looking for affordable housing right now. They're saying, I good job in Lab West, I can't find any housing. That's where we're to right now. We actually have teachers who want to come work here, want to come live in Lab West, but there's just nowhere for them to live right now.
1: And so, not to say that we, you or anybody else is simply throwing their hands in the air and saying, well, it's, and it's a, a cost issue and with the mining salaries compared to teachers, what have you, but the next question obviously is, What can be done about it? Because I've said in the past, and maybe people think I'm out to lunch, but like with some of the benefits agreements, especially with the mining companies, wouldn't it be amazing, as opposed to all cash flowing to the province, it would be like the establishment of affordable housing or apartment units or condos or something that would eventually revert back to us. So, uh, summarily, what can be done about it in the immediate term?
0: Absolutely. So and the biggest thing right now is it's not houses, Patty, right now. It's uh, rental accommodation seems to be where the crunch is right now because when CMHC and all that put on the means test for mortgaging, it actually changed the dynamic of housing in Lab West significantly because at one time, you, went, you got your, you know, your so many days in, you got sworn into the union, you were able to go get the mortgage for your house. So that would happen in you know, a short amount of time. Right now, uh, the new rules require that you have to mean test your mortgage. So that requires your cash down payment. So that takes a little bit longer for people to actually go and buy a house in the West. What happened then is more people stayed in rental accommodations for a longer period of time and basically created this backlog of housing. So right now, there are houses on the market in Lab West, but they're just out of reach for the average
1: person. As usual. So you talk about the boom-bust cycle. We're in a boom at the moment. You know, there was some interest given to the contracts on between Northvolt AB and the batteries they built for Tesla and Valet. And we've talked with someone from Search Minerals on this program. So we've thought long and hard about what well, is iron ore and a couple of other precious metals or critical mer- minerals in Labrador. Where's the boom headed? And how much support are we getting from the province to understand the opportunities in the industry? Because we can talk about oil. We can talk about a green hydrogen. But the mining sector seems to be poised for the boom like we've never seen before
0: yeah this is something that even like I've talked to people like my, my, my father and all these people who have been around here for a long time uh, this is something that's never been seen before it's more of a sustained price so right now we've seen a very long, long extended sustained price of ore um, and then we also hear, you know, the whispers in the wind of, you know, um, the talks of expanding, you know, the footprint of the mines and the talks of uh, recently from, especially coming out of uh, the last conference, and there's another conference coming up, um, talking about Tecora and some of the projects and stuff that they want to do and expand their scope of operation. So if these things continue down, we're going to see a, a more tighter stretch of what's going on here. And then if you look at the current stat- uh, census data, From the downturn to this point of time, Labrador West actually grew during its last downturn. There's actually more people living in Lab West now than before. So we're actually seeing a very interesting changing dynamic in the mining industry, especially that iron ore and iron itself is one of the base metals of all building materials. So we're actually probably gonna see some very different type of boom and it's probably gonna be a longer sustained boom uh, that could actually cause even more housing problems in the region unless, you know, it's time for government to step up and say, okay, now, you guys have to start playing ball.
1: Well, so, okay, the perfect storm is an interesting one because you might have the salary to afford, whether it be a home or a rental unit, but there might not be one available. Do you happen to know what a vacancy rate is in Lab West at this time? Because around here, it's around
0: 3%. Yeah, as a bit less than that, no, I'm not 100% on what there is, but currently, um, you know, I did my own, <laughs> took down and I went down on the website of all the realtors in the region. Uh, on average, there's about between... Uh, Forty-five to uh, sixty houses on the market at any given time in Lab West right now, um, and they're all priced over over two hundred to, uh, to two hundred three hundred thousand dollars. So they're out of the reach for a new teacher just coming up to the region. So obviously, uh, they can't. They, I'm, I'm sure they don't have the ten percent to pay down on that right away either. So and but the vacancy for apartments is zero. There is no apartments available in Lab West.
1: Uh, last one before I let you go. So I did indeed just speak with a gentleman who's in the hydrogen business, and we've talked about minerals with you. And then we had the uh, the diesel-generating station in Charlottetown burned down, but I've never heard anyone talking about anything other than diesel for a replacement. Whether it be this new approach to wind and the doing away with the 2007 ban on wind or other alternative forms of energy, what's the opportunity to look like in Labrador? Because God knows it's as windy there as it is anywhere else. So whether it be on the Great Northern Peninsula or right where you live, to do away with that diesel replacement, And to look at some of these new alternatives. Did you hear anything about it?
0: Yeah, and and it's interesting because you look at okay, so Valet. Valet's putting in a wind turbine to cut back on their diesel usage. Um, You look at the solar panels on uh, you know on some of the buildings up on the North Coast and South Coast right now. You know there there is a lot of opportunity on you know changing the way that we actually look at electricity and how we use electricity. So there's a lot of opportunity, and you know, and it should be given to you know. To, uh, you know especially with the uh, you know indigenous groups and stuff like that give them the opportunity to actually curb the dirt diesel use in Labrador but we also you know with labrador we're the largest producer of <laughs> hydroelectricity uh, uh, in the province and you know the opportunity is that you know we have to have a stop look at and go how do we connect everybody to the resource that we're already making that is already you know producing green electricity you know like why, why are why are we so afraid of the idea of you know maybe you know to make the investment into you know Let's get everybody off diesel.
1: Yeah, not a bad idea. Uh, Jordan, appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say this morning?
0: Uh, no, I just said that, you know, like we have to really, uh, government really needs to step in and say, you know, we're just talking about recruiting up teachers and stuff like that. You got to look at where they're living and how, if they can afford to live in the places that we're sending them. And that's the big key right now.
1: Good to have you on. Thanks, Jordan. Take care, bye bye. Jordan Brown, the NDP member for Lab West. And of course, uh, Gord, who lives on the Great Northern Peninsula. I assume he does because he tweets about the region. You know, talking about the fact that we've got a proposal in our agenda, a proposal in Stephenville, and who knows how many others are in the queue. We're told by the minister responsible, Andrew Parsons, that there's been a significant amount of interest shown in access to Crown lands here in the province and the wind and the water. And what about some other parts of the province, like on the Great Northern Peninsula, for starters? I don't know, but the initial thought on it, and people are asking, sure, why would the Germans come here? Why don't they just do what they need to generate their own power where they are or closer to them? It's a good question, but without understanding what this contract or deal tomorrow to be signed looks like, I have no earthly idea. I don't think anybody does. But with government's involvement in it, if this is the private sector identifying where they'd like to set up shop and where they think is the best port for them, Is there opportunities? Are any of the suitors looking at parts of the Great Northern Peninsula? I don't know. Are any of them looking at Labrador? Because, of course, we've got, you know, the environmental sensitivities are a big part of this which is what World Energy, GH2, has been asked to go back to the drawing board and to answer those questions. More details associated with their proposal. So the questions you ask about, why would the Germans want to set up uh, a contract here for the provision of green hydrogen? Good question. Maybe when we hear from the chancellor tomorrow and or some other people who will be in attendance, which would be great to hear from different voices. And the reason we had Mr. Caron on is just to get a bit more of a better understanding about the industry, period. Not the specifics of what's happening in this province, because currently he has no operations here. But all the questions that you're asking are good ones. The GNP, Labrador, why here? Why the Germans? Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back to the topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just uh, picking up on something that, a reaction to something I said off the top of the program. This about the K-12 system, and we can talk about masks and ventilation and all the rest of it. And I brought up vaping. And I'm told constantly that the numbers of students, especially junior high and high school, that are vaping are extraordinary. Huge numbers. So I brought it up as a concern that we maybe can address. And someone wrote, I don't know how old their child is, but said, you know, isn't it our business if we allow our young people to vape in our own family? Of course it is. It's completely up to you. My reaction to that would be, what do we actually understand about the risks associated with vaping? Because it's really not that well understood. We know exactly what goes on when you smoke tobacco products. Vaping, a little bit different. There's, of course, you can see someone break into an immediate cough fest when they even vape. Then there's breathing difficulties associated, but there's exposure to chemicals that we really don't understand. We're heating up these pods uh, of a liquid, turning it into a vapor. There's nicotine. There's different flavoring, different substances, different chemicals that we don't really know what they do. There's also some relationship between nausea, weight loss, diarrhea. And then the possibility that your vaping product leads you into smoking a tobacco product. So, yeah, it's not me telling you what you can and cannot let your children do. But we're bringing it forward because it's been a concern. It's been a concern of folks in the industry. You know, just think about when there was the thought of doing away with and banning like all the flavored tobaccos or in the cigarellos that are raspberry flavor and all of that's gone away same thing is a concern being forward and you know what the companies think because when you talk about well let's ban the flavors because the flavor makes it a bit more palpable for the vapor if it has a whiff or a taste of watermelon versus whatever the raw taste would be when they fight that tooth and nail you know you're on the right track you know you're on the right track to curbing the amount of vape products being sold and think about it a lot of the vaping products are manufactured, distributed, sold by tobacco companies. So they see it as some type of existential relationship between the two. So that's the only reason I threw it out there. And also, this is something I brought up maybe last week, week before, whatever. It was about do you tip various people you do business with, various professionals? Like, you know, you go to a restaurant, it's Pretty well understood practice to tip. Now, some restaurants have built the gratuity, the tip right into the bill, and they pay their staff a higher hourly ra- wage. But the whole concept of tip inflation or tipflation, you know, think about it. When we were first looking at the handheld device to use our credit card or our debit card to pay a bill, if it was somewhere that you would normally tip, and it began at 10%, it went to 10, 15, maybe 18, and maybe 20. Now, they are passing the machine over to you, and it has a much different starting point. Gone are the 10 and 12s. I mean, 15 used to be what many people thought was a fair tip, 15%. That was a well-known number, a well-used number. Now, you might get the machine in your hand, and the least expensive gratuity that they uh, are asking you to choose is 18. 18, 22, 25, and some machines as high as 30%. I'm not even sure that's good for the staff, because some people would be comfortable enough tipping 15%, don't want their base option to be any more than that. So what happens then is that you may indeed see people just choose no tip. You know, in many of these places, they will pool their tips. But, you know, do you tip people other than your servers? Do you tip your mechanic? Do you tip your hairdresser? You know, do you tip people in other walks of life that you might not normally tip? Like even going to some fast food restaurants, you get the keypad in your hand once again, they ask you for a dollar amount that you'd like to tip for someone who just made your sub sandwich, for instance. So is that something that people do? I don't know. I just think the whole thing about 30% being an offering on that keypad for the amount that you'd like to tip, that's a hefty tip. You're a good tipper if you're throwing 30% out there. Uh, Let's go to line number one. Marty, you're on the air. Well, hello there. Hello to you.
6: I uh, wanted to see if um, there might be somebody who perhaps has found my wife's telephone. We're here from Pensacola, Florida. Welcome. And last Monday, we were, we went to the St. Mary's Ecological Preserve. And unfortunately, my wife put the phone on top of the car. And we felt, feel like it probably came off in the parking lot. But um, we were able to trace it to Fox Cove, Montier, um, and we actually had a picture of a house and a friend of a friend who lives down that way identified the person that lived in the house, and we called them up, and they said they don't know anything about it, <laughs> and we, we, we believed them, but probably what happened was somebody picked it up, went all the way down towards uh, Buren, and um, the phone died, the battery died and, and it probably died along the way right where this woman's house was. Anyway, we, we, we love the people in Newfoundland. Y'all are great. We just thought we'd ask.
1: Well, why not? There's no harm in asking, is there? So if you have found a phone maybe in and around the parking lot at the St. Mary's Ecological Reserve, Preserve, then we know who owns it. Uh, Marty, what drew you to the province as a holiday destination?
6: Well, we have a friend that um, I worked with and met in Houston at a company deal that we had to go to, and we've been buddies ever since. And my wife and I have been up to visit about three times over the last 10 years, and they've been down our way three or four times. And um, we've been spending the last three weeks uh we we got a separate place we got a b and b so we wouldn't be crowding them too much but we're together a lot and we we met all their friends in spread eagle and i mean those people love to party i tell you what
1: <laughs> how about you guys
6: <laughs> let me tell you what okay i've learned how to say bye well bye yes bye yes I have been having a great time here you
1: know. <laughs> That's terrific well welcome to the province we're glad you're enjoying your time and hopefully it won't be the last time you visit us here of course Florida has been a very popular destination for travelers from this province for a long time a lot of snowbirds have a place in either Florida or Arizona so certainly familiar with your neck of the woods as well so the phone was lost it is now out of power it's of no use to you if you have to pick it up if you want to call us here at VOCN, we'll get in touch with Marty and his wife to return the phone to them, or would you like to give out a number, Marty, or just use us as the go-between?
6: I'll be happy to give out a number. Um, it's an area code two o five, and then there's five twos, two 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 one nine. So it's two o five one two o five and nineteen. And um, actually, if they could just charge the phone up and call me on the phone there you that, go that would be great you know that way we could figure out how where they are and you know hopefully be able to go down and get it wherever it is
1: well fingers crossed Marty that you get it back in uh, one more time so how much longer are you planning on spending here in the province
6: we are spending the whole month of August here no oh, terrific yeah and um it's like if you got if, if you want to go somewhere you know why go there and turn around and leave You know, we're retired and we have friends here. And I mean, I'm going to feel sad at the end of August when I have to go back.
1: It's a beautiful place. I mean, sometimes uh, those of us who live here, we just don't realize or appreciate just how extraordinary the province is. There's a lot to see and do. We have the rugged uh, geography that people don't realize how cool it is. Whether it be you get to see a humpback or a puffin or an iceberg, things that we take for granted, I'm sure it's mind-blowing to a resident of Pensacola. Uh,
6: it's, uh, It's unbelievable, but the biggest thing, it's the people. Good.
1: Glad to hear it. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Marty. And fingers crossed we get the phone back to you.
6: All right. Thank you, sir.
1: Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. It's Marty from Pensacola. 1-205-222-2219. Sounds like a mic check. 2 2 All right, let's take a break. Today's a good day to get on the program if you're in the St. John's Metro region. And yes, we're going to be willing to put a little compilation together of if you're planning on going seeing the parade today, you want to say something kind about either the Canada Games athletes or young Alex Nook, we'll take that on because it's a nice break from some of the other issues. But of course, you know me, whatever you want to talk about, I'm into it. It's two seven three five two one one in the St. John's Metro Region and elsewhere. Toll free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming
3: back. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Pam, you're on the air.
3: Good
7: morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Very well, thanks. How about you?
7: I'm just back from uh, not long back. I was part of the first week of the Canada Games as a parent.
1: Fantastic. And
7: uh, not long back, it took a little while to get over. We saw every corner of Niagara, which was wonderful, and uh, celebrated some pretty cool stories while we were there. Um, I traveled as a parent with the baseball team, so we got to celebrate Jada Lee. And uh, also... uh, and Pencil a cool story. I know uh, the Telegram has written about it, but uh, he participated in both ends of the games and was a member of the baseball team as well,
1: which was really cool. And he was on the volleyball team, right?
7: Yeah, he was on the volleyball team second half and male baseball, well, uh, baseball, shouldn't call it male baseball, uh, at the first half. So uh, we had a great time. Um, we spent four years leading up to it as a parent. Uh, the first tryout, of course, was about four years ago. Um, of course, the games are a little longer than they were supposed to be, put off a year. Um, so it's been a long road for us. Some other sports, of course, don't take that long to get ready for, but baseball uh, is a long road. Uh, the tryouts for uh long and travel. my uh, son's from Harbour Grace, so we traveled a lot. Um, so it's a lot of a lead-up, right? So the reason for my call this morning is beyond the celebrations. of course, the games are over, uh, lots of things to celebrate. But um, as a parent, we, uh, we had a... You know, we celebrated lots. So we had some difficult times while we were there. Um, the games, as you know, I'm sure, are a part are a bigger story than just the game you play on field. The games are about uniting youth and, you know, all kinds of other things, experiencing the games. Our particular team um, didn't really get to experience that part of the games, which was really unfortunate. Why? What happened? Um, uh, they were, for the first three days of the games, they were uh, confined to residence. Um, didn't really get to go out about, and Games Park was right next to residents, so there was wrestling there and beach volleyball there and box lacrosse, which is really cool to watch. Uh, weren't allowed, getting ready for the games. Uh, we didn't do real well uh, on the field. We, I say we won last. Uh, so uh, it wasn't a matter of uh, we, they know where they stand before they go to the game. Uh, you know, we knew, yes, you always hoped that, that they're going to play, and we had one lovely win, um, but um, they were really, they didn't get the game's experience, and uh, I went the right route. A lot of parents were afraid to speak. Um, I've never been afraid to speak, unfortunately, for most of <laughs> uh, But uh, I, uh, I went the right route. I went to mission staff, and because part of the coaching course that you do for of Games is about making sure your athletes uh, experience the game. So in the first three days, all they saw was the baseball field and the opening ceremonies. And then when the, little few, the kids were speaking about it, I, was, I had the uh, opportunity to be close to the field because I take a lot of pictures, and uh, I could hear the rumbling. You hear the kids, and, and uh, the players were pretty disgruntled uh, about not being allowed to go here and not being allowed to go there. So they didn't get the games experience, and unfortunately for some kids on the team, they didn't really get to play. So uh, I understand sports. I've been involved in sports a long time. You play your best player, especially when you're in contention. But when you come to a certain point, you play every... There were kids did not see the field unfortunately yeah
1: i mean well let's start with that not seeing the field i was just flipping channels yesterday morning and i got sucked in by watching the little league world series and they actually have a role in place much like fair play uh in ice hockey minor hockey but and even in that that tournament international tournament the rules are every single player plays in every single game and that just makes all the difference in the world so not getting on the field or getting on the pitch or getting on the ice is always always going to be frustrating for the uh, the young athlete and of course for their family but not right. getting well, to experience the games is kind of unnecessary right I mean like well I was at the Canada Games in 2017 in Winnipeg and the boys and I know the panel kid you talk about as a baseball volleyball player my son did a lot of work with the Canada Games team before they left for Niagara so I mm-hmm. spoke about him on the on this show but I mean the yep. boys we were able to take them to a couple of concerts you know in okay. whatever the field was called every night there was a different concert representing artists from different provinces and we we're able well, to do those a, things together.
7: I'll give you an example. Newfoundland night was the night after the opening ceremonies, and uh, all Newfoundland athletes were offered a bus to go to this Newfoundland night, and our team was told they were not allowed. And that affects your on, on uh, field play, the way you feel. And um, they just, it, it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Um, I don't down coaches. I value the time that they spend at these things. But there's certain things that uh, have to be upheld. And there's a bigger picture than the game itself, especially at the Canada game, especially anywhere. They're developing young people, There are at- turning point in their lives where little things change. Now, when I got a little I I contacted mission staff and I contacted the representative from Sport NL. They got to go out a bit more after that. But it was an unnecessary route that you had to go down, right? And kids that didn't get to play, look we weren't in contention. We knew that a lot of times, you don't say it out loud, we knew it before we went. These kids pay, like we paid a fair amount of money I I would say I this baseball cost me close to ten grand in the last four years. Mm -hmm. Um, Practice a lot. You know they deserve to play like anyone else. The same kids were in the field most of the time. Uh, Some of the kids watched other people play. I had one boy look at me and say, "I'll never play the game ever again in my life," and he's played it since he was four. And I I can't be quiet about that stuff. It's not in me. And I know I wanted to wait till the games were over. And, um, you know, my letters go to BNL and my letters will go to Sport and, and my uh, government, Pam Parsons, me. And and uh, I'll go right to Andrew and make sure he knows his story. But it's not good enough. Not, not when, not when you know, things are. Um, on um, the back end of a major event for these young people, this could have been a different program. in the day of Snapchat, on had a different experience.
1: But, you Absolutely. Know, you know, there's a happy medium. If you were talking about the I don't know the quasi lockdown, or you know, keeping them in their residence throughout the evenings and what have you. At a certain age, when the possibility to get in a bit of trouble and to be sneaking out in the woods on the beer and that kind of stuff, or find yourself in bad situations at the bars, unlike going to the field on Newfoundland night to watch the concert, being able to take in and support some other athletes in different disciplines when you have some downtime, like I saw many times, you know, the female uh, volleyball players going to watch the men and vice versa, and other athletes going to take in something that was close by their venue or their residence. Like, even if you were potentially going to finish sixth or hit the podium or whatever, there's no real downside in having that opportunity to trade pins and to trade coats or to trade hats with an athlete from an, uh, another province. I still see a Team Manitoba jacket floating around Jack's room all the time because that was part of his experience. Yeah. That's
7: right. You know, after a little bit of leveling was met, they did get to go. And of course, they got to watch Jake's pitch at the... Very appreciable, and it was an extra, and I'm glad they got to do it. But at the beginning, and it, it was a, it was like pulling teeth, and it shouldn't be like that, right? It should be um, it, it should be part of the experience. And I and I went back to the to the policies, and, and I asked people, you know, and it is part of the course that they do to offer the athletes a full games experience. And I wish I wish the parents weren't afraid to speak because some of them still need somebody's connection to ball to go further And ball. I don't. Um, my boy will play at down St. Pat's for a long time, I'm sure, but, uh, you know, it's um, it's the premise of the whole thing. And I, I, I just keep it to myself and not say anything. I, I, I love this. think
1: yeah, the, the connection's breaking you up know. pretty badly here now, Pam, but I completely okay. understand your point, and I understand the worry that you have that some of the experience of the games, because you can play competitive athletics for a long time, and you can go to national tournaments, but there's a difference between going to the baseball nationals than going to the Canada Games. It's just a completely Probably. different bag, a completely different kettle of fish, which is an experience that you can't replicate at a national event for one single sport. So I understand your concern. I'm glad you made time. I'm sorry that was your experience as a parent, and I'm sorry for the young people, on the, whether it be the baseball team or otherwise, that didn't get yeah. a chance on the court or the floor or the pitch and maybe well, didn't get a too. chance to see some other stuff. That's, that's really unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear it, Pam, but thanks for the call.
7: I do for a different experience.
1: Thanks for this, Pam.
7: All right. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. That's too bad. Will I take the caller on hydrogen before the break? Yeah, I just don't want to miss out here. Let's go to line one. Caller, you're on the air.
6: Good morning. How are you?
1: Very well. You?
6: Not too bad. I've got a, I've got a question to ask you now. I understand that there's somebody coming here with regards to, say, uh, getting some hydrogen from from us, The hydrogen deal.
1: Yes, that's true. That's happening tomorrow in Stephenville. The Prime Minister will be there. The German Chancellor, Scholz, Olaf Scholz will be there. A variety know. of business leaders will be there, yeah.
6: There's a question I've got to ask, and I, I, I don't know who to ask. Maybe it's better to ask,
8: get send it to you, because you might be able to get a hold of somebody or you'll see somebody in the know. Here's the situation. Okay, I'm a retired pharmacist, so I know that water is H2O. Right. Will they be, will they be taking two atoms of hydrogen from the water? And if they do, what happens?
1: Short answer is yes. Really? Yep. Lots of fresh water will be utilised. It's the process known as uh, electrolysis to use the wind power and the water to separate the atoms in the formation of uh, green hydrogen, which will of course have an implication regarding ammonia as well, but yes, there will be plenty of fresh water being used.
6: Okay. So all that oxygen left over by itself won't cause any problems?
1: Not that I... Well, I don't really know. I can't answer that question specifically because I'm not sure. I I would think... No. Pardon?
8: Okay, because all I'm thinking about, okay, Mother Nature, water is H2O. Okay, if you take away one of the ingredients, what happens to the other? And does that shag up the natural occurrence in nature? See, I'm, just, I'm a very
6: inquisitive person. That's all I'll say about
1: that. And fair enough. It's a fair question. I've been trying to figure out more of the water-related implications of the project. But, of course, we don't even really know what we're talking about here yet because we don't really know what the deal looks like. Is it specifically about the port-to-port proposal with World Energy GH2? I don't know. But okay. every detail we can find out, including all the freshwater implications, they are absolutely on my list.
8: Sounds good to me. Thank you, sir, very much.
1: Appreciate your time.
8: Okay, All bye, right.
1: bye Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and just one quick comment. You know, someone floated in uh, an email regarding Pam's thoughts on, you know, not getting the full games experience with being able to get out and watch the other athletes at different sports or go to the Newfoundland night. And what I think she means by that is, like in Winnipeg, each night there was a provincial-related night. Like on Manitoba night, the Crash Test Dummies performed, along with other Manitoba performers. On Newfoundland night, uh, the headliner was Alan Doyle. So there was a full string of concerts throughout the entirety of the two weeks, and it had, you know, lots of opportunities to meet from different food trucks and to meet other athletes. But part of it is the swapping of the pins and swapping some of your team garb with an athlete from a different province, whether it be in the competition that you participated in or otherwise. So that's really unfortunate that they didn't get the full taste of it. I know that with all the training and the time and the cost, that the coaches and the managers would like to ensure that their athletes put their best foot forward. You know, If you were up until 10 p.m., we'll say, uh, bed check time, 10 p.m., and it was all in the residence with your teammates, nothing wrong with bonding with your teammates, but if that had a little dollop of also being able to get out and stretch your legs and see other things, you might not have jeopardized any opportunities on the pitch, on the floor, on the field, or in the gym, or whatever else. Okay, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, tons of time left to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Say good morning to the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Party. Good morning, Craig. You're on the air. Good morning,
4: Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, I'd like to talk about the uh, health care in the Bonavista district, and they're just a little bit on the roads. But I, I'd like to be able to give a couple of shout-outs first to all those who, uh, who represented our province at the the Canada Games. Um, did a great job in representing us. Uh, I know there. I listened to Pam while I was in the queue there, Paddy, and I know that on fair play, that's a concept that I think that you know needs discussing. And debate. There is no doubt in those competitive uh, arenas, and and I would agree with her. And I'm sure there's a way that we can make sure that we can fine-tune that for 2025 when we do host those to make sure that the Games' experience is uh, as unifying for the youth as as it possibly could be. But anyway, very proud of those athletes and the parents and the volunteers who who, uh, represented us so well in, um, you know, this past summer Games.
1: It's, look, I mean, again, I wasn't there. I don't know exactly what went on. But if there was for two or three or four days, and you're only there for one week, if you're only there for uh, baseball, there's just so much to the games that it really is important to get out there and get take it all in. It's fine to be competitive. It's fine to be determined. It's fine for the coaches to try to keep you on a tight leash. But a tight leash can be experienced if you're having a bite to eat, watching a concert with your buddies, meeting someone from another province, playing one sport or another as part of it all it really is unfortunate that not all the athletes I mean forget the fact that some of them never got to play which I think is always terrible but the whole games experience thing it's just such a big part of it like I was trying to say that day over day when I'm talking about the games but to know it wasn't the, uh, the outcome for all is too bad
4: yeah, unless I mis- misunderstood her, but I think she, she liked to have her child, I think, have some experience in playing time. I, I That was what I gleaned from from listening to her, and I could be incorrect. And I know that we, we struggle and we battle that and we debate that in our school system when we have teams representing our schools to make sure that we do have people play. And, of course, it will be varying degrees, but but that is the concept of fair play at least to have some playing time, and it may not be all equal, but at least it's, uh, you know, they are getting, getting some time. I'd also want to mention a big shout-out to Alex Newell as well. Uh, not often we get the Stanley Cup come to our province, and this guy is making time uh, for people to enjoy it as well. We've got many from the District of Bonavista who are going in for the parade today, so I, uh, a shout-out to him and his family and the City of St. John's and whoever is involved for making that happen. And we can never assume that it's going to happen in our lifetime Going forward, if you think of the law of averages, Patty, um, you know, for a cup returning, having somebody on a, a Stanley Cup winning team.
1: It's you know, brilliant. Uh, Labrador. Yeah, there's a lot of the New York the family, Nikki Vinicum, and others put an awful lot of effort, like a month working on this this day. So I think it's going to be large. Last comment on fair play. Fair play doesn't mean that every single person on every single team plays the exact same minutes. It's not that at all. Be- no. And you know, here's something that people don't remember: is for instance, at the end of the game, when you're allowed a bit of latitude to put out your own power player to you know give a double shift to your star. There's a lot of players, whether it be uh, in hockey or otherwise, they're on the bench in the 3-2 game. They've had their shifts, and they're happy to be part of the team, but they got their head down hoping to not be called upon because those pressure times of the the games, not everybody on the team wants to get out there. So, you you know, getting to play is important. Sitting on the bench and picking splinters is awful. But at some points in some games, not every athlete even wants to be on the floor or on the ice or whatever the case may be. I'll just put that out there because people kind of lose sight of that sometimes. But anyway, on to your topic this morning, correct? Yeah.
4: Well said, uh, Patty. Uh, nobody ever mentioned uh, as a parent that they wanted their child to be on the power play. I think they just take for granted that their child may not be to that, yep. that ought to be out in that. So there's no doubt about that. But they sure, certainly wouldn't want their child sitting on a bench and not participating in in, uh, in game after game. But I think we've moved past that, Patty. And um, But like I said, that's rightfully so. Healthcare in the Bonneville Peninsula. We, we've, uh, as you know, we've been on diversion on occasion this past this past summer, uh, in fear of when it may happen again. We have uh, a region that serves eight thousand people. We've had every day at twelve o'clock. In the community of Bonavista, we have some residents who stand as a rally in support, holding placards in support of health care within Bonavista daily. I had, Whenever I'm in the area, I'll I'll join them as well. I did Saturday and Sunday of this week. And, you know, to be commended, very respectful, respectful of the challenges in health care, but want, what is best for uh, the residents in the district of Bonavista. And I just give an example of which some, some things that you hear of a situation. I contacted these parents. We had a 12-year-old boy from Hamers Cove who fell off his bike, suffered injuries. Uh, the parents rushed him to Bonavista Hospital, which is the closest. And I, I'm, I'm just guessing that probably 15 kilometers, Patty, Hamers Cove to 12, 15 kilometers to Bonavista. Sounds about when right. They got there, when they got there, it was locked. Uh, you know, they fervently knocked on the, on the door to, to get in, and, and only when a staff member had said when they were outside, said, no, you're going to have to go to Clarenville because the place is, is um, it's locked today. Well, they left Bonavista and went to Clarenville, and uh, the young boy was losing consciousness on the way up the peninsula. They called for an ambulance. They were told that the ambulance could be uh, up to three hours. There were very few ambulances involved or uh, that were available to help. But anyway, fortunately enough, they did get to Clarendonville, and fortunately enough, that the boy is okay. But it's a reminder of what could happen if we don't have access to our health care services or the personnel within the complex. Many would ask, Patty, many would ask, uh, we didn't have a doctor. But we did have nurse practitioners and we have registered nurses who are great. And the the, the staff are fantastic, that's in Bonavista. It would be nice even if they could triage or there's there's a lot of things they could attend to. And I know that if we're looking at uh, airways obstruction, they may not have that training. But what really happens if somebody comes to the door with an airways obstruction? Do, do we send those to Clarable too, or what do we do, or do we try our best within the, the capabilities and, and the professionals that we would have within the billing? So these are the conversations that are happening on the rally and around uh, the District of Bonavista, and that's fair conversations. And I know that it comes down to the standard of care and what you're trained with, and without that physician that would be on duty, the other ones may not, wouldn't have the standard of care, again, to look at airways obstruction, but there's a lot of other things that they certainly could address without the people having to go to um, to Clarenville
1: yeah because it can't be about getting lucky you know it it can't be about well I'm it's it's fortunate that I don't have a a heart issue or an air path restriction or whatever the proper phrase is you just used versus something that where I can take a longer drive take my chances get the treatment I need because it can't be just about crossing our fingers hoping for the best
4: no, 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 exactly right. And, and Patty, uh, another thing, too, we're, we're probably embarking upon the health accord and a new chapter and, and, a, and a, a new normal for health care delivery. But one thing I think the residents of District of Bonavista want is they want local representation involved with the recruitment and the retention. If we can't showcase what Bonavista has to offer for, for health care professionals, whether it be a nurse or the RN, uh, nurse practitioners, physicians, if we don't have the opportunity to showcase what, The District of Bonavista and historic Bonavista in particular has, we're missing a piece of that recruitment process. Uh, Years ago we we had a very active committee here. We never had diversion. We always had a doctor and I know things have changed and there's reasons why that were the case, but we had some people like George Clements, Fred Koff, Phyllis Haley that served on as volunteers on a committee. We had you know Wayne Taylor down there who worked to know when the doctors, what the issues were arising from them that they can be addressed before it comes to the point that it um, that they looking at exiting so we need more local to make sure that we're in touch with the system knowing what staff we have and what we can recruit but the local group can help in that provincial process there is no doubt and i think same as an education if you're going to put into one board and not have uh, these satellite offices in the in the regional sections of the province then i would think that most would say that that's not going to work as well than if you had the local representation so these are some of the issues and i know that we're writing a new chapter but uh, we're just concerned to make sure that we've got patient care and the data would say that uh I would think, in my own opinion, that we ought to be a Category A, judging by the data that would be in quality care NL. If the stats are there and and we're in that ballpark within a Category A, then maybe we should be. But nobody's looking for day surgery, Patty. We're not looking for that. We're just looking to make sure that we can be addressed and needs uh, promptly in the area. And then they could be directed on to specialist care in others like Clarenville or St. John's as needed.
1: hundred percent. Appreciate the time, Craig.
4: Yep. And can, can I, Patty, just one more thing on the road? Very quickly, because I'm going to get to the news. I, I certainly will. Uh, to think that we're on August the 22nd and we've got roads in our district that potholes that would be damaging cars as it has. And I can give you some examples, but don't have time. Uh, it should not be in, in, in August. We shouldn't have the potholes that would damage vehicles on our main routes like 230 and 235 in July. So I would challenge the system to make sure that we don't do this again. And in the words like Fred Lodge of Port Union or John Connors over on, on, the, on the cove side, they haven't seen it as bad uh, in their lifetime. Uh, so I would say that we've got to challenge ourselves to make sure that we've got those damaging potholes repaired. Nobody is complaining about wanting pavement, you know, large swaths of pavement. They just want to make sure that they're safe on the roads, and the tourists that come to Bonavista has not got to deal with damaging their vehicle on a pothole unnecessarily. So, Patty, thank you very much for your time.
1: Appreciate yours. Thanks, Craig.
4: Okay, bye-bye.
1: Great, bye. Craig Pardy is the MHA for Bonavista. Let's take a break. Appreciate the patience of those in the queue. You're up right after this.
3: Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number 10. Say good morning to the CEO at the Alzheimer's Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Shirley Lucas. Hi, Shirley. You're on the air.
9: Good morning, Patty. How are you
1: doing today? Great today. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing good. Super. So we're looking at something from your webpage talking about a dementia passport. What is it?
9: The Dementia Passport is an e-learning program uh, that we developed uh, to provide um, education to healthcare professionals within the province so that we can improve the quality of life for those living with dementia.
1: So, like, what's the intended outcome here? Because not everybody would be at the same stage of Alzheimer's or dementia. So how do you measure success and what's the real goal here?
9: Well, the goal is to get as many people um, educated on new evidence-based information as possible. Um, and we began the program in 2020, um, and we have over 2,200 people trained at this particular point in time. And I guess the value of the program, it is an e-learning program, so people can do it at their own pace. Um, you know, it takes away from the classroom settings, um, and people learn different ways. Um, And the program actually includes um, a lot of different types of modules. So it talks about things in terms of care within the long-term care setting, personal care homes in the community, um, and provides strategies and tips to be able to, again, improve the quality of life of people who are living with dementia.
1: Let's start at the top, module number one. Uh, References to key terminology, case studies, and the Charter of Human Rights and Freedoms. What do people need to know?
9: Um, In the module number one, we focus, uh, I guess, in terms of the basics of it um, and making sure that people's rights uh, with dementia are protected um, and taken into account in caring for someone. Um, And I think that um, other aspects of the module uh, covers um, the... um, sorry, uh, understanding behaviors, because as we know, behaviors uh, with dementia are sometimes an issue, and learning strategies to be able to problem solve to deal with some of those.
1: What's uh, person-centered care?
9: Uh, Person-centered care is taking into account uh, the individual and their, I guess, past and their um, previous experiences, as well as respecting their rights, um, and always looking at, I guess, the uh, abilities that the person has and meeting them where they are as opposed to, I guess, assuming that everybody is at the same level within a diagnosis.
1: When we talk about quality of life, uh, where in this e-learning are we talking about people living with dementia, but also their care providers?
9: Um, well, we talk about it. Uh, the program is designed, I guess, our target audience is healthcare professionals. So when we talk about quality of life, we talk about decision making, we talk about, um, you know, safe environments, talk about the loss um, that uh, people, the families, as well as the person with the disease experiences, and how to uh, meet the person where they are and be able to support them the best that they can.
1: These types of programs are probably more important than ever. They've always been important, but if you look at the forecasted numbers of Canadians with Alzheimer's or dementia, it's staggering. There's been some money put behind it, but we, you know, when we talk about preparing for the future, not just with healthcare workers or individuals with dementia or their families, but preparation is going to be the key because if anyone's taken the time to look at some of the forecasts for whether it be 2030, 2045, it is remarkable. It's off the charts. It is indeed for sure. Offer some numbers for context. I've read them in the past. I mean, we're talking about uh, worldwide estimates of about $80 million, uh, pardon me, 80 million people by 2030, 150 million people, if I remember, by 2050. So the numbers are staggering. Bring us back to Canada. Give us an understanding of the numbers that you see.
9: So in our province, we have 10,129, and that's expected to close to double by 2030. So it is quite staggering, and it is something that we need to be prepared for. And we need to ensure that when people reach um, the dementia journey, that the healthcare system is prepared to be able to respond to that need.
1: Yeah, I mean, because it's everywhere in every walk of life. And this is all not necessarily associated with the aging population that we have in the province, but preparation for long-term care. And what that means, not only for individuals with different health care needs, but of course with dementia and Alzheimer's, the preparation will be the key. It'll be less costly. It'll be less chaotic because we all see what happens if we're not prepared prepared, then when the 11th hour arrives, we are scrambling. And consequently, the care suffers. The individuals suffer. So there's a lot to this. We need to get it right. So if folks would like to uh, understand more about the Dementia Passport and what they need to do and how they sign up, where do they go?
9: They can go to DementiaPassport.ca and learn about the program. I also want to note as well the government um, are behind this program in supporting us and offering a funded model to people who work in personal care homes and in home uh, care agencies, that they are providing funding to be able to help train some of these people, because each module costs $25 per person for two-and-a-half hours training, so we have the cost to a minimal to be able to make sure that we're reaching the target audiences out there.
1: Appreciate the time, Shirley. Thanks for this.
9: Thank you very much. I really appreciate it.
1: Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Shirley Lucas, the CEO of the Alzheimer Society of Newfoundland and Labrador. Before the break, line number one. Larry, you're on the air.
10: Yeah, Patty, I'm phoning about uh, I got to be coming about doctors first. We're pretty fortunate in the harbor race right here. We got three doctors, we got the pharmacy right, right next, so we're pretty lucky right. I got my own doctor that God loving people who've got a doctor's hard, right? Absolutely. But, but that's that's not a phone about Patty. I'm found the about the hockey, right? Like some young fella was was gonna quit all together and not be after the Canada games they had the can of games that but I'm I'm thinking, you know, like why can't they put put the third string or the fellas that are not so good, the fellas on third string, why can't they put them on the ice at least for two or three minutes each period of each game, at least everybody be playing. But who knows, you know, what's what's gonna happen maybe the fella playing on the third period if he wasn't the best player at Newfoundland no in the world, and probably the NHL, you don't know, we'd just slow down the third three.
1: Yeah, we you lose know. hockey players in particular as the contact becomes part of the game, and if you don't get to play, because I've seen it uh, many, many times over the course of my playing and coaching career, is players that are maybe not top two line guys when they're in peewee, come midget, they are. So yeah. we don't want to lose them, and even in just talk about fairness, and you know feeling proud of your uh, trip to the rink or the ballpark or the soccer field or whatever, if you're constantly there and the teammates they see it, they know who the players are who never get out there. It, quite likely, those players will just quit, and that's in yeah. nobody's best interest. It's
10: just, it's just hard why quit hockey because you know because the third, if you're put around the third string, you're on on the third string. They should give them a couple of minutes of hockey anyway, right? Just let them play for a couple of minutes of the game and give them a bit of satisfaction. Who knows that? one these young fellas gets into it on third string? who knows in a few years time they might be in the NHL you don't know how good they're going to be after a while right
1: sure but so. even if they never make it that far even if they just play for you know into their late teens well it's yeah. better than other stuff they can be at
10: that's right because you know it's, 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 it's a lovely game I played hockey I uh, just forgot until I was 30 years old but you know, but it's Must be hard. Sat down on the on the bench, not and the coach to keep me on the bench for the for the whole game. Not even getting the you know. my young walking for the phone. I heard on on open line or on the radio. He, he he was crying because he never got a shift on news. and he was saying he's not going to play hockey no more. You know, it's not right. He should be. Given, the third drink should be against the third string and no change in layers players well, for that couple of minutes or something like that. You know what I mean? Sure. Give the offer a chance to sell. That's all I got to say. You know?
1: Absolutely. Appreciate the time, Larry. Thanks for the call.
10: Yeah, okay. Thank you, Freddie. Have a good day. You too.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with Caitlin Urquhart. She's the co-chair of First Voice. They've got a working group talking about police oversight. We see CERT, the Serious Incident Response Team, in the news all the time, including last week. But additional oversight, civilian and otherwise, whether or not CERT has the teeth to do the job that they need and want to do, we'll hear what Caitlin has to say right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Take more morning to the co-chair of the First Voice Working Group on Police Oversight. That's Caitlin Urquhart. Good morning, Caitlin. You're on the air.
11: Good morning, Patty.
1: Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So police oversight, you know, there was so many different corners of society clamoring for more oversight. There's a complaints commission at law enforcement agencies, but then we adopted our own serious incident response team. Now you're calling for more oversight in what form?
11: So what we're talking about is uh, more proactive. So right now, as you mentioned, we have the Complaints Commission as well as the Serious Serious Incidents Response Team. And both of those are reacting to incidents or events that have already happened. What we're um, calling for is for a a more proactive approach, one that's going to look from a policy, a systemic basis, talking about policies on use of force um, and, and how can we make the change that we need to see in the police forces from that uh, sort of civilian-led sorry, um, uh, model that most other jurisdictions already have.
1: So with civilian oversight, so let's just do a compare-contrast. So you have Mike King at the helm of CERT. And Mike, of course, an experienced attorney, would have an understanding, whether it be police protocols and policies, what happens inside the courtroom and what have you, are we, what kind of training would be afforded to a citizen to be on these types of boards because you have to have some sort of understanding about how this agency works, RCMP, RNC, OPP across the country. What would the civilian need to understand to be a contributing partner to an oversight board?
11: Absolutely. Now, much like other, pretty well all of our other sort of commissions and, and boards uh, across the province, we would anticipate this would be um, a merit-based application process where the uh, boards and commission uh, boards and commissions would would select um, appropriately experienced uh, and varied and diverse individuals to sit on this board. But the big difference that we're talking about is this right now, CERT or the Complaints Commission. So CERT is looking at anything that is a criminal offense right so if there is uh it's whether or not the the police have engaged in some sort of a criminal act uh and they investigate that whereas the complaints commission deals with other types of misconduct that don't rise to the le- level of a of a criminal offense and so those are dealing with specific actions or incidences of police you know that have already happened and what we're talking about is something that would a body that would set policy so they would actually give the direction uh of policy from from that board with that civilian-led um uh Board to, to create that buy in to ensure that we are that we are as the the name of the report suggests building trust and restoring confidence in this system. We know from reports uh, both across like nationally as well as locally that there is a lack of trust in the uh, in policing within this country and within this province. And as the uh, the poll that we just released today suggests, eighty eight percent. Of, of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are in favor of a civilian led uh, oversight body. And that was across all, excuse me, a variety of different dem- demographics, all uh, ends of the political spectrum. So it's, it's really uh, a policy that has great, uh, great public support behind it at the moment.
1: Just give us an example because you're right, CERT will investigate something that's happened. How do you get out in front? How do you be proactive? You know What gets deterred? What gets to be understood? Is it a matter of informing the public about these are the issues surrounding police brutality or like, give me an example so I can latch on to how you get out in front of something before it happens.
11: So really, so absolutely, Uh, policies around use of force would be uh, an important one. Um, So what are the circumstances in which different types of, uh, you know, of use of force would be appropriate? That would be one type of policy. Another type of policy, uh, for example, whether or not uh, you can drive, you know, one police officer alone in their car can drive a person home from uh, you know, George Street, for example, whether you might have a policy around uh, those types of, of actions. Um, there, there are a number of different, uh, you know, police engage with the public every single day, uh, and they have the authority to, to search uh, residences. They have the authority to, as you, you've mentioned, use force um, to detain people to interrogate uh, people, they have a lot of power um, within you know within our um, within our current structure so they often we don't see what goes wrong until it goes to a court case, but the vast majority of police interactions happen before anything or without anything ever going to court so this oversight board would um, for example if if there was Um, a police officer going to a home to investigate something you might have policies if there's a a concern that it might be uh, someone who has weapons on the property that you would have you know two officers there you maybe would have to have a dash cam or something to to record or a body cam to record the event there's various different things those are ideas uh, of types of policies that that this type of a board may choose to to engage with now I will also say that this report is still in draft because we want to have an inclusive process whereby the public and all the key stakeholders have an opportunity to to uh, have input into this and uh, and to work collaboratively towards these solutions that are Newfoundland and Labrador based that are going to help for our uh, you know situation and our circumstances here on the ground uh, in this province.
1: I'll just make a comment to get you to react to it. For me, one of the most important outcomes for this established working group when and if it gets off the ground is it's not that long ago that police were trusted, appreciated, revered. They were part of the community, you know, in the concept of community policing. It was a vocation that was highly respected. Now with some of the mistrust and some of the stories that seep into our psyche, whether they be from around the world or in our with our southern neighbors, all of a sudden, some of that Uh, mutual respect and appreciation of protect and serve has been eroded some of that is because of the quote-unquote bad apples inside of any organization including law enforcement so even if we have a renewed trust in each other and respect for law enforcement if that's the only thing that ever comes to this i think we've taken a great stride forward your thoughts
11: absolutely Uh, again Uh, that the title of building trust and restoring confidence that's really what this um working group is intending to do right it's to to work collaboratively to try to find ways that we can uh, move forward because we know that there is this mistrust we we've seen um you know reports of The report that this really sort of stems from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry report that talks about failures in policing to protect Indigenous people and particularly Indigenous women. Um, We know those those. facts those those circumstances have led to this erosion of trust broadly and it's important we know you know the police aren't going anywhere and we need to work together to find a path forward where there is where there is trust there's is, there's is respect and uh, and really that oversight and accountability is a big part of how we build that going forward
1: last one uh I seem to think, let's just use the RNC, they would welcome this because the vast majority probably don't want to be viewed as one of the so-called bad apples. I think they embrace it. What do you think?
11: I, my understanding is that uh, there's a lot of interest in the report uh, within law enforcement and that they're you know, interested in engaging. So we're hopeful that uh, that, that will lead to some, some further collaboration and that government will also get on board and, uh, and seek to establish this oversight, um, this oversight board. And we're also certainly looking for the public's uh, engagement on this issue. The report is available on the First Voice website. Uh, and we're we're certainly eager to hear from folks about uh, about their thoughts uh, on this as well.
1: Appreciate your time as usual, Caitlin. Thank you. Thanks so much, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. It's She's the co-chair of the First Voice Working Group on Police Oversight. Time for the news. When we come back, Tanya wants to talk about ambulance issues. Then we're talking electric vehicles. Then whatever might have been going on that's not great in Bannerman Park. Don't go away.
3: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: Welcome back. Let us go line number four. David Brake, you're on the air. Hello, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Uh, be on the air again. No problem at all. Uh,
12: I'm just uh, about to set off on a, uh, another uh, trip back to Ontario in my electric car. And uh, as I was uh, just doing the spade work, it reminded me of a, a bit of an untold story of, of uh, the way electric vehicle charging networks have or haven't been built around the Atlantic provinces. I, I learned some time ago um, that, uh, if you, you know, Dennis Brown, a consumer advocate uh, with the PUB, uh, mm-hmm. he, uh, he's been a persistent um, behind-the-scenes opponent of the build-out of uh, electric vehicle charging uh, here in the province, at least uh, any that's done with that ratepayers paying part of the bill. Uh, I discovered it just by chance. Um, and then I discovered in, my, uh, in the course of my uh, travels that the same thing happened in Nova Scotia as well. Uh, essentially, um, okay. consumer advocates uh, appointed ones saying ratepayers' money shouldn't go towards uh, helping build a, a basic you know, skeleton network for uh, electric vehicle owners to get back and forth in the process. Um, I hope that you can persuade uh, Mr. Brown to, to come on and, and share his reasoning and, and talk to people about it. I I wasn't able to get him to
1: do so myself. But. Yeah, I, I can try. Um, There's a few things, like I hear that those comments made on a variety of fronts. Well, you know, let's just boil it back to other areas of life. So, if I haven't been to the hospital in 10 years, does that mean I shouldn't contribute to the health care system? If I don't have student, or pardon me, uh, children in school, I shouldn't be contributing to education? You know, where, where do we stop? How do you back out? How do you find an exemption to paying for what are things that you may or may not use? Like, for instance, if they build a new green space in one part of the city or another that I might never tread, uh, set foot in, does that mean I get backed out and, and exempt uh, from paying for a portion of that? Of course not. You know, these are things that we fund in different walks of life that we might not be personally, intimately involved with, but it's part and parcel of how taxes are collected and how they're distributed. So I just don't know how that conversation is anything but a non-starter, personally, just for me.
12: Well, I think I mean, it's a little more nuanced than that from, from, from his perspective, because he's saying uh, that ratepayers in particular, as opposed to taxpayers, you know, should not help foot that bill. Uh, but the fact is, for numerous reasons, it makes perfect sense that <laughs> they should. Um, We uh, will be generating an increasingly enormous amount of electricity that we are uh, not able to otherwise uh, use uh, unless we export it for not very much money. So anything we can do to increase the domestic demand for uh, electricity would be beneficial. Um, Hence, we need to have more electric cars. We are not going to get more electric cars unless people feel comfortable being able to get them from point A to point B in the in province. I, to me, the logic is unarguable, but uh, uh, the stuff I've read uh, in his submission suggests the private sector should, should step in, or, you know, there's a risk that the utilities will crowd out investment from the private sector in, in charging stations.
1: Yeah, um, we're happy to I'm ask you the question. Wouldn't. You know, and people also yeah. go down this road. They say, well, with more and more electric vehicles, that's sometime in the future, and it's not overnight, is what about all the gas tax that uh, folks with internal combustion engines uh, pay and all the road work and bridge work that won't be done? My, th- That is so far down the road from being an actual concern that I'm not even sure what to say about that. We bring in about three times more than we spend on bro- roads and bridges right now in gas tax. So where that becomes a push arriving at shove is decades away, decades, literally decades away. So there's arguments to be made and make sure we're on the right track and people paying the appropriate amount of money for appropriate levels of service. So we'll see if we can get Mr. Brown to come on and have that discussion, no problem.
12: I do do hope so, and I hope it it, it can help things uh, settle out in in the other provinces as well, because in Nova Scotia in particular, where this has been stalled since 2018 for the same reason, uh, the EV network is is in need of some serious... uh, Take up. I would just add a final point. Uh, it's unfortunate, but the problem with uh, charging station building here in Newfoundland, as distinct from elsewhere, is that uh, we're not on the way to anywhere else. There's a business case for building charging stations if you've got a national network uh, in low population areas, because people still have to go through on the way to, to other more populated areas. Newfoundland. It's going to be really difficult. We're the lowest number of EVs in the province, uh, in, in the country. It's really difficult to expect um, the private sector to pick up the slack when we're, we're nowhere, near, uh, that, nowhere near that level that's necessary yet, and we're not, we can't be cross-subsidized by other things. That's why we have no Tesla superchargers either. So yeah, pretty much. We do
1: need that investment. We I appreciate this morning, David. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, obviously, see. Well, you know, we frequently touch base with Mr. Brown. We'll do so again on this one. Uh, let's go to line number five. Brad, you're on the air.
13: Hey, Patty. How are you?
1: Not too bad, thanks. How are you doing?
13: Uh, not too bad, bye. Uh, we had a discussion a little while ago, I guess, about uh, how retail and uh, food service workers were created. I, uh, I wanted to give a huge thank you to uh, Andrew Parsons. He really helped me out. Um, he went out of his way to uh, help me. I was, at the time, I was in school and I was looking for a summer internship and employment, and uh, he came in to buy pizza. One day at the pizza shop, I asked him if his last name was Parsons. He identified himself, and uh, we had some correspondence back and forth, and he went way out of his way to uh, try and land me a uh, summer internship position. So anyway, a big thank you to him. I think the fact that he comes on your show, I listen to your show often, and uh, he goes on and it's just completely voluntary you know he's not obligated or doesn't have any uh, you know, just doesn't have any obligation to go on your show yet he does to be completely transparent to be honest to have these discussions and uh, I think that speaks a lot to his character and the fact that he went out of his way to help me somebody doesn't know somebody who's working at a pizza shop at the times uh, says volumes about him so fair enough yep yeah, Uh Also, uh, the man who called in for uh, the man who is visiting from Florida, I just wanted to leave a few tech tips for him. Um, I know he lost his phone and he GPSed it, but he wasn't able to uh, contact his phone. Um, It's possible that the phone could be dead, and it's also possible that the SIM card could have been swapped out. Uh, You know, not putting ill intent on anyone, but if that is the case, if he's able to connect with his phone at some point. If someone doesn't call or he doesn't return it to him, um, probably uh, lock his phone remotely if you can. It's easy to guess swipe codes. It's easy to guess patterns, and it's easy to put in pin numbers. So if he has access to it, if he's able to connect to it, um, I recommend you putting in a password with uppercase characters, lowercase characters, special characters. And numbers, um, just to lock it remotely if possible, because it's easy to look at a phone, guess the pin number, guess the pattern by grease and stains left on the uh left on the screen.
1: Okay. So, I know um, you also want to talk about something in bannerman Park. What happened?
13: Yeah, uh, I got to be honest, that's, that's something that really bothers me. uh I think that uh that event that transpired, where the woman was attacked in Badenwood Park, is very concerning. Um. You know, I heard a story a a little while ago in Alberta. I'm not sure if you caught one of it. It was probably a month or two ago. lady was 65, 75 years old uh, in Alberta, and she was out in the backyard, and she was gardening and putting up flowers, plants, things like that, and uh, the neighbor's dogs broke loose. broke out, got around the fence or whatever, and, uh, you know, she uh, she got mauled in death. She got chewed up by these dogs and she bled out for 20 minutes and was just out gardening in the backyard. So, I mean, it was very concerning to me because, I mean, I hate to make the comparison, but, um, you know, it, 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 there's some sort of relation you can make between that event and what happened at uh, Barrington Park, you know. <clears throat> I think the, uh, the lady who was uh, assaulted was a victim of circumstance. You know, it could have been anyone. It could have been anyone laying down, but, uh, you know, it was all impulse. But anyway, uh, all things said, I think that it's good to have this discussion now because when the story first broke out, it was huge and people started focusing on the wrong things. Now that the dust has settled, uh, we can get back to the root of the problem. Um, You know, when the story broke out, it was. People were focusing on the bystanders Why more people jumping in and I'm sure that's something to look at um The other case was when the father was interviewed when he was questioned and c b c interviewed him they were focusing on the uh mental health system you know they're living in cornerbrook they tried to get him help. They moved out to St John's for better access to services and as soon as they found out that the uh the child or i guess the uh, aggressor was uh you know, maybe not responsible for himself. And they started questioning the father, focused on him. He recoiled immediately. As soon as he was criticized, as soon as he was under the barrel, he shed flame, all right? So, I mean, as soon as you're criticized, you, don't want, you don't want to take responsibility. You don't want to uh, take the fall. So they started saying, well, you know, we're in Cornerbrook. They had no services there. We moved to St. John's. And... There's no, there's no services there. We we got put on a wait list. We got rejected from several different programs. Um, this, you know, it's not my fault. I mean, I'm the guardian, but, you know, I try to get access to services. They wouldn't give it to me. So, it's, you know, I'm not totally to, to blame in this case. And you know, he certainly didn't ask for it. And I, you know, I hate to say it, I don't blame them. Uh, I mean, it's not entirely his fault. You know, but you have to make do with what you have. But uh, the story in Alberta, I mean, it's in my opinion, it's a similar case. I mean, these dogs, they they broke loose from their home, okay? So you get a German Shepherd, breaks out of the house. It's unsupervised and uh, runs out and takes a couple chunks out of someone and they start bleeding out. I mean, the immediate effects of that are one thing, but the lasting effects of that are something else. So this German Shepherd breaks out tear someone apart or does serious damage to a human being, the dog's not responsible. The dog can't think for itself. Who's to blame? Well, it goes straight to the owner, you know? The person who is responsible for that dog is put under the crosshair. And in most of those cases, almost without question, the dog's not responsible, but the dog is euthanized, you know? It's dealt with in a way that's... um, it's dealt with, but the owner uh, receives a fine or a ban or some sort of penalty or something like that. So what happened in my honest opinion with uh recent event, you know, whatever releases were, is that once the story broke, you know, blame was shifted off the dog, was shifted off, off of the aggressor who was attacked in the park or the attacker in the park, mm-hmm. then the crosshair went over the owner or the legal guardian of the aggressor.
1: I think they're kind of two different things when we talk about the father and the son versus the owner of the dog. Uh, but just because of the time on the clock, we'll have to leave it there today, Brad. But I appreciate your time as usual. Stay in touch. Yeah, okay. Okay, thanks. All right, take, take care. care. Uh, last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Tanya, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad at all. How about you?
8: Um, I'm pretty good. I'm just calling because um, I was home um, for vacation, and as like while I was home, um, we had a Come Home Year celebration, so there was a lot of people from all over Canada that came um, to our really small community on Northern Peninsula. Now, I'm just going to say it because I live in Happy Valley Goose Bay currently, and. Um, and there's a, a reason why I said this because every single minute of every single day, you drive down Goose Bay or you're at your house, you hear sirens, you hear um, police, you hear something going on. You see them all the time. Police RCMP in our area, which is awesome. I, I'm not that's not the reason why I'm calling. I'm not calling to complain about RCMP presence. I'm actually calling to complain about the. Uh, Lack of presence in um, St. Anthony and the St. Anthony area because, uh, like I said, while I was home, we had a um, come home year celebration with our own little town. Less than 100 people lived there. Um, We were like everything was going great. It was a full week of events. um A lot of people like I said, came from all over Canada. um My aunt, my uncle um and my two cousins actually came from Red Deer alberta and um while they were there, um on the seventh of August, we got a phone call that my little cousin actually uh died in his sleep while we were the closing ceremonies was actually on the 7th, and he died at, they found his body at 6 a.m. that morning. Oh my. Um, yeah, it was very devastating. We, I still haven't even come to terms with it. Um, but the whole reason why I called is because of lack of services in rural Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, we had to wait three hours for an RCMP officer to show up at the house to pronounce the death unsuspicious. There was no local RCMP person in St. Anthony, which is less than a 10-minute drive to St. Anthony but to come to our community to go in and pronounce my little cousin dead and say that it was, wasn't a suspicious
1: death. We are under-resourced. I think uh, we'll hear from law enforcement Pretty frequently great. and they say the exact same thing. The RNC, there were some stories a week or two ago and it was, uh, well, we have more calls than we actually have officers. So, you know, mm-hmm. being spread thin is one thing, but even just, oh, what's the right word? even issues like this, when Time is important. It's one thing to react to a crime. crime, it's quite another to deal with a family tragedy and mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. So these are real life issues that you know, they don't make the glassy headlines like, you know, wait time for an ambulance and or a crime was committed or what have you. So this is a really unfortunate, very sad story. I'm so sorry to hear it, Tanya.
8: It was a it was a, actually it's really traumatic because like the um, ambulance from our hospital and Stancy were there. Like they had to bar the doors. They had to, we would not allowed in the house to see him. So while this was all happening, like my aunt and my uncle were sitting out on the bridge waiting for the RCMP to actually show up in rain. Um, we all gathered around um, my aunt's house where they were staying. And I spent hours holding his older brother in my arms trying to get him not to get in that house like just bear hugging him so that he could not get in that house because we weren't allowed in there it was very traumatic and um the rcp actually had to come from uh, gladdeckton so that's a fair bit away from seeing anybody if you know the area um so then, um, when they did show up, it didn't take very long. It was it was in and out, and they determined that his death was due to, um, well, we're not 100% sure what it was due to yet, but he was scheduled for a heart surgery in September. Um, my little cousin was, he was only 37. So he was scheduled for a heart surgery in September to get some things corrected, and we're thinking that is what he died from. So from that point when the RCT left, um the paramedics in the um, funeral home came, and we also didn't have anyone at the hospital to do an autopsy, so his body then had to be transported to Corner Brook. <laughs> so that was another thing. Like, it wasn't just, like, locally. We didn't have anybody to even do an autopsy.
1: Yeah. Uh, I would I really hate to cut you off on such an important and emotional no, conversation. We just cleared 12 o'clock, so we can pick it up again another time, Tanya, but they're waving me off right now. Excuse me? They're waving me off because uh, we've cleared 12 o'clock, and I hate to cut you off yeah. when we're talking about something so important. So I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. Understandable. Okay. We'll talk again soon. Have a good day. You too, Tanya. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. And we are out of time, unfortunately. But we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Actually, Tim Power's in for me tomorrow morning. Uh, tomorrow morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. Talk in the morning. Bye-bye.